It was uh, one of those fights as a kid between your parents that you just kind of get etched in your mind. One of those ones that you can immediately go back to. And for me in my household, it was something that was somewhat commonplace. You kind of knew these things happened from time to time. And I was in my room with my door cracked. They thought I was asleep, but I wasn't. I was hearing everything that was going on. And I remember listening to the volume get louder and louder. I remember listening to the words get harsher and harsher until eventually one person snapped. And then the next thing I heard was keys getting picked up off of a counter, a door opening and closing and slamming. And then I rushed to my window that faced outward towards our driveway, and I realized, in fact, it was my dad. And my dad was getting into his two-tone Ford F-150, and I remember in that moment seeing headlights back down out of a driveway. And a little boy's brain and a little boy's heart, you can see those things and hear those things and feel those things, and a thousand different things begin to come to your mind. And in that moment, I know I felt hopeless. And I remember on the playground, kids talked about this thing or being or something called God. I didn't know much of him, but I found myself in that moment desperate for this God who I heard was really strong and could do amazing things. And so I said, well, if there is this God, I would love for him to bring my father back. In that moment, all I really wanted, and in that moment where I pray my first prayer ever as a child, the thing that I want is my father to be where I am. The thing I'm most afraid of in that moment is my dad not being with me. The longing in my heart in that moment is I need my father with me. I want to be where my dad is at, and I don't know if that's gonna happen again. Now in my little boy vocabulary, I did not yet have this word that I wanna show you today, but that feeling that I was feeling is a feeling that I believe we all have felt. It's this feeling. Pining. We sing this in one of our favorite Christmas songs. Oh holy night, long lay the world in sin and error pining. Till he appears and the soul felt its worth. See, this pining, this longing, I think is the great equalizer in a room like this because we all have felt this. Maybe it wasn't for a family member to be resolved back into your life, but every person in this room has felt longing, whether it's longing for a child, longing for graduation, longing for stability, longing for your health back, longing for restoration in a relationship. Every person in this room has felt longing, even the kids in the room. You are longing to open your presence tomorrow morning. Amen? We have all felt longing, pining. The definition of it means to yearn deeply suffering with longing, longing painfully. So my question this morning is, what are you pining for? You know it, the thing, the person. And for those of you in the room who are part of that crowd who are going like, I'm good, man. You may be the most at-risk person in the room 
My hope today is to show us that Jesus' birth, Jesus' first coming is about pointing us to the one event in history that our hearts, souls, minds, body, flesh, bone, everything in us should long for and pine for. And that's what I want to hopefully show you too today. See, the danger sometimes in an amazing holiday season where we do focus our attentions to one aspect of Jesus's story, his incarnation, him coming to earth, putting on flesh and bone, being born in a manger in Bethlehem, is sometimes we can get so consumed with the Christmas story that we miss the cross. Now, what I want to show you today is, is actually taking it a zoom out further of not just looking at Jesus there in his manger and not just seeing Jesus there on the cross, but also seeing the next great event in the cosmic calendar, his return. And so what I want to do today is to point you towards that next great event. There's this word that sometimes gets used around churches and, and maybe you have one of these in your home during this season, but it's this thing called Advent. Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming. Now, what I'm gonna hopefully try to be able to show you today, and this is probably unlike any Christmas sermon or Christmas Eve sermon for sure that you may have ever heard, is the connection between Jesus' first advent and his second advent, his first coming and his second coming. And I wanna hopefully show you that really all of scripture, that all of the Bible is pointing towards the part that points to the second coming. That when you even look at the first coming, it's great, it's amazing, it's awesome. And I could show up here today and I could show you this amazing Christmas story today, but all that you would hear would be a Christmas story of Jesus being born and you would miss out on so much. What I'm hopefully gonna be able to help us see today is that his first coming, the real beauty and the real power of his first coming is in that it points to his second coming. It's the connection between these things his incarnation, that's just a big fancy Christian 50 cent word theologically to talk about him putting on flesh, putting in human flesh, coming to earth, God becoming man, coming down here. And Christmas is for sure about his incarnation. His first coming is God incarnate coming here to dwell among us. But if we just leave this whole thing here, what we miss out on is his coronation. Now you see in that word, coronation. What thing do you see? And I know you don't want to see it, but what do you see in there? Corona. All right. And if you didn't learn then, now you know, Corona means what? Crown, his crowning, his incarnation and his coronation. And then this big word consummation, which basically means when Jesus consumes, when Jesus wraps things up, when it becomes final. And we have not made that last move in the cosmic calendar yet that brings about his coronation fully and his consummation Totally, but what I want to do today is show you how much of this little story points us towards that. To set up the grounds for my, I guess, thesis or whatever you would want to call it today, I would tell you that in the Christmas story, and this is miraculous, in Jesus' first coming, that incarnation, there are over 300 prophecies that foretell his first coming. And he made sure and lived out and made come true all of those things. And we see those through scripture when we look at his first coming, his incarnation, the first advent. But what's amazing, and I had no idea until I really started to look into this, is when you look at the prophecies around his second coming, the second advent, there are eight fold. So I don't know if you're doing math. 
if there are 300 and it's eightfold? Anybody, any kids in the room want to figure that one out? No, they're too scared. Okay, great. Eight times three is, there we go, 2,400. So what that means, guys, is there are 2,400 prophecies in Scripture that point towards the second coming, the second advent of Christ. Now that's huge. What that means is in our New Testament, so everything from Matthew to Revelation, one out of every five verses in our New Testament is pointing our attention and our affection and our minds as Christians towards not just Jesus' life, not just Jesus' birth, but Jesus' return to earth. And so I wanna show you one passage in particular through the Christmas story, and we've kind of already tiptoed around this, but I want to show you two particular things out of Matthew 20, or Matthew 1, verses 20 through 21, and 22 and 23, that help us lean into two key characteristics of this second coming that is right there in the midst of his first coming. When you look at the first coming of Christ, and I had to do this as I went through and read both the accounts in Luke and the accounts in Matthew, So much of what gets talked about, especially from the angelic creatures that show up and visit Mary or Joseph, even in the way they talk about Jesus' coming, when you look at it in light of his second coming, you can tell that they're not just talking about this event that's going to happen in Bethlehem. They're talking about the fulfillment of all time. Let me show you the first one. This is an angel. Um, This is kind of picking up on the context here. This is uh, Joseph is the he here, but as he, Joseph, considered these things. So Joseph is is knowing that his wife is pregnant, but he doesn't for sure, for sure, know exactly how at this moment. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Capital H, capital S, that's God showing up. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now this, he will save their people from their sins. Sometimes we can read that word and go, okay, Jesus is coming. They're giving him this name. It's Emmanuel. He's what he's going to do. He's going to save people from their sins. That's going to essentially be his mission statement. And we can think about save people from their sins. And we go, oh, that was that moment when I raised my hand at that camp or that conference, or I walked forward down an aisle, or I got baptized. That was a moment when I was saved from my sins. Or we can just look at the story of Jesus and go, okay, when was Jesus saving people from their sins? When did that happen fully? The cross. He paid for their sins. The resurrection, he conquered death that sin pointed towards. But if we just leave saving from sin at the moment that you quote unquote got in, you got your get out of hell free or you raised your hand or you prayed that prayer or you did those things, that's that moment that I was saved from my sins. Friend, what we miss out on is the fullness of our salvation. I've talked to you about this before, but I want to lean into one particular part of this. When Jesus saves us from sin, you have to understand that sin attacks your life on three planes. Sin attacks your life in the past, in the present, and potentially in the future. And when Jesus saves us, he saves us in the past, he saves us right now, and he saves us into the future. And the way that works is Jesus, in the past, he saves us from the penalty of sin. Your sin deserved death, an ultimate separation from the Father God. But because of Jesus, because he came to the earth, was God incarnate, lived this life, he has freed us from the penalty of sin. He has paid that penalty himself through his crushed body, 
his broken blood, he's poured that out. Now, that's the past. All everything we've ever done in the past is taken care of by Jesus. He saved us from that. And now, here in the present time, this is where he saved us from the power of sin. This is where we can actually live day-to-day lives, not having to give in and succumb to the temptation that we face in this world. This is where we are, to quote scripture here, more than conquerors because Christ is in us. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And that's part of the salvation he gives us. He gives us salvation from the power of sin right now. And here's the one that we sometimes skip over because it's hard to get out of the realm of this world, but he also saves us from the presence of sin. So when you look down here at planet earth, you can turn on the news. You can think, you can scroll on your phone. You can tell really quick. You don't have to even really try. You can even figure out and bump into it here inside of a church building. But we know for sure that down here, we are still in the presence of sin. We are in the presence of some people who are still sinners and not yet saints. Even our own self realize that we have a propensity still, though we are saved, though we are free from the power of sin, we still have a propensity to sin. But when Jesus returns, this is what's so amazing about this. His first coming was pointing to his second coming when we will be freed from the power, the penalty, and ultimately the presence of sin. Can you just close your eyes for a second and think of a moment in time where there is no more even temptation to sin. When you don't wrestle against that wicked flesh. When you don't have to have those moments sometimes where you see something and you start thinking about something and you just kind of got to go, where was I? I can't stop that. That's bad. Go, get away from me. But a moment in time we were completely freed from the presence of sin. When somebody gives you a compliment and you don't have to go, what do they want from me? (laughs) What are they buttering me up for? Freed fully from the presence of sin. Jesus talks about this this moment in time. If you want to go back and, and look over it over the course of this holiday season, hopefully a little gap in time you have, you can go to Revelation 21. It's an amazing description of what this is going to be like. It says that that God is going to come and and make a new heavens and a new earth. It says that God will make his dwelling with man. It's actually not us necessarily going to him. It's actually him coming to us. In Revelation 21, 22, and 23, it says there are no temples in this new city. He is the temple. This is what's wild. It says there is no sun or no moon in this new place. It is this place where the presence of sin is fully dealt with. There's no sun or no moon. And it says that he will be the glory of that will give the light to that city. See, at Christmas, we read verses and we talk about Jesus being the light of the world. And John talks about this in John chapter one, that the light came into the darkness and this light shines in the darkness. And that's what we see in Jesus's first coming, that light is coming into the darkness, that the light comes and is with us. But what's amazing is at Jesus's first coming, there's light in the world. At Jesus's second coming, Jesus literally will be the light of the world. I don't know how this is going to work, but I guess the sun is just going to burn out. The S-O-N will just burn out. And then the glory of the S-U-N will be what gives light to every day. And that's something worth looking forward to. Something worth remembering. When you see a Christmas light, let it just fail in comparison 
to the light that is to come. Now, when we think about this freedom from the presence of sin, really that's just one side of the coin that is to come in the second coming of Christ. This passage goes on and it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. This God with us. When you go and you look cover to cover from the thing, what you will come to find is this is the grand overarching narrative of all of scripture. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, where was God? With them. I mean, God couldn't have, got, well, I guess he could have, but when he creates Adam, he breathes into his mouth and creates him from the dirt. It's like, this, this is Adam. <sighs> like, he can't get any closer than this. He's with him. He walks with him in the cool of the day. God is there with them. Then they fall and God is less with them. And over the course of all of what is our Old Testament, you see the people of God trying and trying and trying to live a with God life, even though their sin makes that impossible. And then Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he is for sure with them. He's flesh and bone, he's skin on, but to the people there in Judea, he is Judea, Jesus with them. But meanwhile, Jesus is there in Judea with the Judeans. When he is not in Judea to the Samaritans, there is no Jesus here. He is with them in the sense that wherever he is at, then people can be with him. He is confined to wherever his sandals go. Now he is God with us in the general sense that he is with us on earth. But there are times when he was not with Mary and Martha to heal their brother Lazarus when they wanted him to. There were times when he was not where he needed to be in their minds. But this withness that we experience while Jesus is on earth gets multiplied as Jesus tells his disciples on the night he's going to be betrayed. He says, listen, it is actually going to be better for you if I leave. I'm going to go prepare a place for you and I'm going to send my spirit into your lives and it is going to be better to have the spirit inside of you than to have me right beside you. And now this is the plane on which we live. If we are in Christ, you have been given the Holy Spirit of Christ. Now God is with us in the sense that his spirit is with us on the inside. Now, we kind of a lot of times just leave that there. And, though, and, and we go through hardship and we go through struggle and we go through things that are unfortunate in life and we go, okay, God is with me. He's in here. But then we still keep living life. And let's be honest especially when we go through hard times. Those are the moments we lay awake at night or we sit in our car in a parking lot and we go, God, are you really there? Are you really with me? It does not feel like it right now. And what we have to hope for in the second coming of Christ. And this is what I think is sometimes so often overlooked when we think about the story of Christmas is the first coming of Jesus says, this is God with people. He's gonna live this life down here. He's gonna 
suffer in every way that they do. He's going to be tempted in every way that they are. He's going to walk this life and become a perfect sacrifice for their sins, send his spirit into them. But one day, guys, he's going to return. And that one day when he returns, friends, we will experience the fullness of his witness. In that day, you know what you won't need anymore? Faith. You won't need it. Why? Because your faith will have become sight. When you stand amazed at the radiance of the glory of God, when you see Jesus face to face, and this, again, this is what his first coming points us to. He is God with us as a baby. He is God with the disciples as their rabbi. He is the spirit with us as we walk through our day today. And then one day we will be with him face to face. Now, the second coming. There's a lot of confusion around this. There's a lot of talk about this and I don't have time to get all into this. I think at some point, probably in the years to come, we will get into first Thessalonians and second Thessalonians. We will pick apart the second coming of Christ and we'll argue about it and have a great time about it and it's gonna be awesome. But here's what I can tell you to sum up what the first coming of Christ is gonna be. For those in Christ, the, first, the second coming of Jesus Christ is going to be amazing. Absolutely amazing. If you're in Christ, when he returns, it's gonna be absolutely amazing. We thought that this little Christmas story here, it's awesome and it's got cool stuff and you would have loved to have been, you know, one of the wise men or one of those shepherds out in the field who got to go see him born the first time. But friend, I'm telling you, his second coming is going to blow our minds. It's going to be great. Every tear will be wiped away. All our bodies will be healed and it will be an amazing day for those who are in Christ. But friend, if I tell you the good news, I have to tell you the bad. For those who are not in Christ, it will be the worst day ever. It is going to be a good day for some. And I hope it is a good day for everyone in this room when he returns. But for some, it will be the ultimate crisis. When we began this series, I began it with the end in mind, knowing this is where I was heading. Because for many people, this life can become a merry crisis. A slow trotting towards an ultimate end that is the ultimate crisis. We think a financial crisis is bad. We think a COVID crisis is bad. We think a family crisis is bad. Friend, the ultimate crisis is one that cannot be resolved. The ultimate crisis is one that echoes into eternity. And when Jesus returns, that is going to be finality for those who are not in him, who have not surrendered their lives, who have not given their lives over to him. And so where we're at here, if those who of us in this room are in Christ, our call is to go out and live in this meantime in this messy middle ground between the first coming and the second coming in a way that it is not a crisis for as many people as possible. And my hope and my prayer is that when we think about this Christmas season, when we think about Jesus coming and being born, that our minds don't just go get so wrapped around how peaceful and how bright and how calm and how nice all of this season is that we miss out that all of this first coming of this baby in a manger was to point us to a second coming. Now, let's talk about that for a second and just compare and contrast the first and the second. In Jesus' first coming, he's wrapped in swaddling cloths and he's there in a manger. When you just picture what this little baby would have looked like, you just picture that newborn infant, baby Jesus. There, I believe he's still crying. He, he, is, he is human after all. 
And that's the picture, that's the snapshot we get at his first coming. But then there is a little more intimidating, to say the least, image of him at his second coming. You go to the book of Revelation, back in those 20-something chapters, you see this image of Jesus coming and he's riding on a white horse at his second coming. He's got white robes on him and they are dipped in blood. His eyes are shining bright like fire and to make, and I still don't understand exactly what all this is about, I have some ideas, but he's got a sword literally protruding out of his mouth. And then he's got a tattoo on his leg that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, so compare and contrast. Nice little innocent baby Jesus at the first time. And then this victorious, eyes blazing, robe dipped in blood, tattoo on thigh, guy who's showing up at the second coming. One's pointing to the other. And we're here in the middle. See, at his first coming, except for a few people, it pretty much went unnoticed. Some wise men showed up a little bit later. Some shepherds showed up. Obviously, Joseph and Mary knew he was coming. But the night that Jesus was born, the world didn't stop. Everything kept going. But at the second coming, you better believe everything will stop. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. That is the king of kings. That is the Lord of lords. And they will bend a knee to that king. At his first coming, Mary had many labor pains. And at his second coming, the world will have many labor pains. And friend, many of the things that we see happening right now are those very labor pains that point us to his second coming. So as we wrap up today, I wanna talk to you about living in this messy middle ground, living in this meantime. I don't think it's called meantime for any sort of coincidence. What do we do as a people of God in the meantime between the first advent and the second advent? First thing is to stay awake, alert, and sober. This passage out of Thessalonians, I think, really points us to this. It says, now concerning, this is Paul writing to a church that was, had a lot of questions around the end times. And if you want to study some of this, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, a great place to go. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, that's his return, that's how Paul refers to it over and over again, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction upon them, as there's that word again, labor pains will come upon a pregnant woman and there will not be escape. He says, though, but to those who are in Christ, he says, you're not in darkness though, brothers for that day to surprise you like a thief. So compare and contrast here. A lot of times we think as Christians, oh, it's gonna just be this, oh, I had no idea it was coming type of thing. That's not what Paul is saying here. He said, for some, it is gonna be like a thief in the light. It is gonna be like labor pains to just sneak up on a woman. It's like, oh, snap, it's time to go to the hospital. But he says, brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, that's not us. You're not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light. Children of the day. Isn't it wild that when we get an image of what the second coming and what life is going to look like there, the sun is literally shining. Like we don't even get told there's ever going to be a nighttime. I don't know how we're going to sleep, but God will figure something out. We've got some great blackout curtains in heaven. Who knows? Um, but we're children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, 
Here's the key. Let us not sleep. Now, he's not saying don't ever go to bed. He's saying don't let your soul sleep. Don't get so consumed with what this world is and what's going on here that you don't stay alert and aware of what's actually going on as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. I'm not going to let anything on the inside get me distracted from what is to come, and I'm not going to put anything into my life that will intoxicate my soul in a way that I can't see what's coming. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, and this is where we begin to not just take care of our own little self, but but what do we do with each other? Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So that's what we do. We stay awake, we stay alert, we stay sober. Now, practically speaking, here's how I would say this would look. And here's what would happen if you don't heed this correction to stay alert, stay sober, and awake. In the meantime, don't be a Demas. Now, I didn't misspell a bad word. Don't be a Demas. Now, some of you are like, bro, what are you talking about right now? Like, did you misspell demon? Like, what are we talking about? Don't be a Demas. And I guarantee on Christmas Eve, I'm the only pastor, maybe in the world, definitely in this country, who's preaching about this today, all right? Some of you are like, what is Demas? Who is Demas? Is that a disease? I don't know. I'll show you. 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul is explaining some things to Timothy. He's telling him basically, it's the end of his letter. He's kind of got out of the theological stuff and he's wrapping up. He's kind of just telling him the state of affairs as his ministry is going. And Paul (laughs) hits this guy, demon, Demas, right in the teeth. He says, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas, he's in love with the present world and he's deserted me and he's gone to Thessalonica. Here's, here's, here's the great warning for us in this. To not be a Demas. To not let this Demas spirit rise up in us that goes, I'm so in love with this world. I'm so in love with this world and the things of this world. And I'm so in love with what this world can offer me and all the little trinkets of the world and all the little awards that this world can give and all the money of this world and all the pleasure of this world and all the comfort of this world and all the security of this world that I'm willing to desert the thing that I know is right. As if Paul as a mentor and as teacher and the discipler of Demas knows that in stepping out of this commission that God has called him to and going back to Thessalonica, he is in direct disobedience to the will of God on his life. And Paul cites the reason. It's because he was in love with this present world, which implies that he was not in love with the world that is to come. I know that's hard down here, guys to get in love with this thing that you can't see, to get in love with this king who you never met, to get in love with this, this Jesus who you can just feel and read about and learn about, but you can't put arms around. I know sometimes it's hard to love. But what he calls us to do is to realize fully that this world and everything in it is fading away and there will be a world that is to come where you have a true king you have true satisfaction. You will have true health. You have true wealth in the relationships that you have with God the Father and his family, the church. So don't, don't be a Demas. 
Last thing. In the meantime, spread the gospel and make disciples. Spread the gospel and make disciples. If I was gonna give you a verse on this, I'd give you one you already know. The Great Commission, it's not optional. Go into all the world and make disciples. One of the things that I fight against in my own flesh is this realization that for, for me and mine, and really I feel like for me as a pastor of an American church, even a Southern American church, as I look at our landscape and I look at what we're good at and what we're not good at, what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, I think the church by and large has no problem and does a really good job about telling the world how to live. We know our word and we see the world. And we have done a good job for the most part of telling the world how to live. Now, what I think we could get better at. Some of us have done good, many of us have failed. We have had no problem telling the world how to live. But friends, more often than not, we have a problem showing the world how to live. There's this phrase in sports, those who can't do, coach. The implication there is you can't do it so you can tell other people how to do it. Friends, this world that is fading away fastly needs no more coaches. Needs no more people who are just content with sitting on the sidelines going, here's how you should do it. Sitting in the dugouts going, ah, that's not it. Our world needs people who realize and understand we have one coach, he is Christ. We have one playbook, it is his word. And he has called us to go into this world to get out of the stands, to get off of the sidelines, to get onto the field and to go and make disciples, to not just tell them how this should happen, to show them how this should happen, to invite them in, the people who are currently undiscipled into discipleship relationships so that the ultimate crisis, the prevailing crisis of life without Christ would be something that is solved in our lives. Now, here's what's wild. We're talking about the second coming. We're leaning all hardcore into that. Here's what I want you to know. Some of you are freaking out, like, do I need to build a bunker under my house? Do I need to get extra savings? Should I get a gun? What book of the Bible should I read right now? Do you want to be prepared for the second coming? Okay, that didn't sound very encouraging, but I'll give you, I'll give you what you need to do. If you want to be the most prepared for the second coming of Christ, make sure others are. You will be fully dependent on Christ. You'll be in his word like never before. You'll be in prayer like never before. And it will cut your heart so much that you will refuse to sit in your prayer closet and wait for some magical experience that you can have on your own. You will be forced into going into the word, going into prayer so that you can go out into a world that is not prepared. And friend, in doing so, the great amazing cycle that is the Christian life of making disciples and being discipled, making disciples and being discipled will be happening in your life. And you, my friend, you wanna know that you're prepared? Be one who is preparing others and you will be, you will be for sure. To sum this up, this life that I'm calling us to live, that I believe the Bible calls us to live is a life that is lived like he is coming 
our way. And it's not just living like he is coming our way because maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but he for sure is coming our way. You know you couldn't get out of one of my sermons in 2023 without at least one verse from Hebrews. So here it is. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, because he did that the first time. But when he appears a second time, he's not coming to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. Friend, are you eagerly waiting him? Are you pining for the return of Christ? This holiday season, as you lean into his first coming, I pray you lean into it wholeheartedly and you look to it and through it and see his second coming and you live your life like he is coming your way. There's a song that our team is getting ready to sing for you guys. And it's, it's more of a special if you grew up in a church like that. So don't feel like you have to stand and sing along. We really want you to take this in, but it's a song that God hit me in one of those heaven meets earth moments in my life. Jessica and I had just, or Jessica uh, had just given birth to our firstborn, Titus. And we were bringing him home from Overland Park Regional Medical Center in Overland Park, Kansas. And we are pulling into our apartment complex in our silver Toyota Corolla. I just had some random music playing on a liked playlist from Spotify. And as we are pulling into the parking lot of our apartment complex, this song begins to play. And it's not a song about fatherhood. It's not a song about kids being born. It's not about any of those things. It's a song about the return of Christ. And what hit me in that moment, we're both just sitting in the car with him in the backseat. I don't think he started crying yet, but he started like once we got home and continued for the next 72 hours, I think. (laughs) But in that very peaceful moment right there, what sunk deep into my heart was that this homecoming, this bringing my child home fails and will always fail in comparison to the homecoming that is to come. But in this middle ground, God is going to continue to send us these heaven meets earth moments that says, while you're alive, son, get on with living. Not just any sort of living, not just day-to-day living, not just dollar-to-dollar living, not just crossing your fingers, hoping that things will get better living, but get on with living like I am coming your way. Because I am. As the band plays, I pray you ask yourself that big question. What would getting on with living like he's coming my way look like for me? Would it light a spark in my life that would never burn out? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this gospel. As we reflect on your return, let it be what we long for the most. Dare I say, let us pine for the return of our King.